Welcome back! Boy, it's been a while, hasn't it? I think I did my last podcast sometime in January. Today is March 1st. This is the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for March 1st. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. Uh, we're back with a bang today. We have a very special guest and a pretty big announcement. The very special guest is Julie Foudy, uh, just like me. Uh, was wrapped up in the Olympics a, a good bit recently, and that's took out most of February. Of course, in her case, she was there. I was just in my basement watching and live blogging for The Guardian and uh, writing previews for Bleacher Report and probably tweeting about it entirely too much. So I haven't even done one of these since we had a new president, and we're only going to discuss that a little bit today. I'm, I am working on a few things to follow up on that front. Uh, but the big announcement is that Ranting Soccer Dad is now on Patreon. And here's the thing. I'm not just saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to give extra blog posts or something like that. No, what, what I'm going to do is that I've been playing around for a while with the idea of writing a guide to youth soccer in the United States. Uh, a comprehensive guide going you know, region by region, state by state, or however it makes sense. In fact, the first region I'm going to do is going to be Metro DC because that's what I know best, and that'll give me sort of a template to work forward from the rest of the time. Uh, initially, I was thinking, okay, I'll sell this as a book, um, electronic book or you know, a physical book as well. And then it occurred to me, you know, this is going to be something where I'm always going to be getting new information constantly. Um, because I'll either be told something I didn't know, uh, or you know something new will pop up, or things will change. You know, a league will merge with another league. Something else will happen. There's so much happening right now. It didn't make any sense for me to do a physical or even an electronic book that would be almost immediately out of date. So what I'm going to do is make it a living, breathing guide. The Ranting Soccer Guide, Ranting Soccer Dad Guide to Youth Soccer, and it will be available through Patreon. So if you subscribe for one dollar a month, you get the guide, which is cheaper than if you paid, you know, fifteen bucks for a book and then a year later had to pay fifteen bucks for the updated version of that book, right? So that's the idea, and if you get it on the ground floor. Um, there's obviously no content ready yet, but you can really help me steer that content and tell me where you want me to go with it, what sort of things to look forward to, and um, you know, look if my first if my first five patrons are all from California, uh, then California might be the region I do next. So there's an opportunity for people to really uh, not just get involved with this so it's possible, but get involved so that you can really steer where I'm going. So that should be exciting, I hope. And certainly a change of pace for what I've been doing for the last month, which is the I, I love the Olympics. I really do. I'm, I'm jealous of Julie that she got to go, um, especially because sometimes the, the commentary that we get, um, NBC's commentary, I think, is fantastic across the board. Um, of course, Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir uh, with Terry Gannon are fantastic on figure skating, which is what I happen to be covering a lot. And, yeah, you know, that's not a sport that I grew up as a big fan on. In fact, I'm terrified that someone's going to dig up my uh, a column I wrote uh, 
probably around 1993, in which I uh, mentioned figure skating as in disparaging terms. <laughs> and uh, I have a pretty healthy respect for it now, and I've really enjoyed um, live-blogging that and getting to know more and seeing all this all this happen. Of course, my my two big sports in the Winter Games are biathlon and curling, and I didn't get to watch much biathlon just because it, it was always starting at 6 in the morning. I just could not get up. Uh, curling, I got to watch a good bit. The problem was that NBC was showing everything on a... All the curling was on a long, long delay. It, it was really disappointing. I don't know why they didn't show some of it in prime time or some of it in there. If you turned on the NBC networks in the morning when there was curling available, you'd get only hockey. And it wasn't that interesting a hockey tournament, was it? Because the NHL players weren't there. So if you wanted to watch curling live, you were stuck with the international feed. And the international feed curling broad commentators were awful. It was just painful to listen to because you'd think that it would be a strictly American thing that we would have to tell every detail about a sport, especially curling, uh, and treat it as a novelty. Uh, or that we would have commentators that would just talk and talk about nothing, which is the stereotype of American sports commentators. But no, these were mostly English commentators. And they just couldn't resist telling you. I mean, you'd hear the same history of curling on every broadcast. It would just be ridiculous. It would just be, well, the here comes Becca Hamilton, and she releases it before the hog line. The hog line, of course, is named after Boss Hog from the Dukes of Hazard. No, it wasn't named after Boss Hog, but you get the idea. They have to explain the hog line and the derivation of it and why it's called the hog line and all that. When Really, those are sort of things you can do with just simple cues. In fact, one of the... Um, I talked with Luke Thomas yesterday on the Luke Thomas show uh, on SiriusXM Rush, which is, uh, which is a terrific show. It's about MMA and more than that. And my first interaction with, with Luke was when he called me out on something I wrote that was actually kind of lazy and, you know, slapped it out when I was trying to crank out a blog at USA Today by myself. And I said that it, MMA blogs really needed to explain more about the sport in every post and not just, not just throw out names like Kimura and Americana and, and, um, Von Flu choke. Well, actually, if you, okay. If you mention the Von Flu choke, you might need to explain what it is. That's that's kind of rare stuff. But Luke pointed out, look, you can you can figure it all out from contests, or you can look it all up. There's no reason for us to try to explain the sport in every post. And Luke, as he often is, was right. And I wish the curling commentators would get that rather than go into boring stories every time about how, you know, oh, curling was taken up by the Scots in the 1700s as a means of killing time when they were herding sheep. Oh my goodness, and you'd hear it every single time. And after a while, you'd start to question what you were hearing. 
all the rocks in curling are mined from the same quarry in Scotland. That that part's actually true. There is a quarry, uh, one site in Scotland that is responsible for most, if not all, of the curling rocks in play around the world, uh, which is it is fascinating. But then. Oh, the rocks were left in place, the granite for those rocks was left in place by visitors from the planet Xenu, who are very confused as to why we started Scientology in their honor when they were really just trying to get us all good at curling so that we would be prepared for the ultimate festival on planet Zargon in 2049. Okay, they didn't actually say that, but it, it at least that would have kept me interested if they managed to turn it into some sort of weird conspiracy theory or something of that nature it was just brutal to to watch that and i'm glad we don't have that really on soccer anymore that used to be soccer broadcast remember um if if you watch soccer in the 1990s it seemed like every broadcaster had to try to explain the offside rule um which was tough because today's broadcasters don't know the offside rule themselves and that it would explain anything that was going on as if this was the first time you watched a soccer game. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. And I think that's what helps the sport grow, is when you realize you don't have to give those long-winded explanations anymore. You can you know, make them available. Have a website that you know offers Curling 101 or Soccer 101 or Hockey 101. That's all great. But don't insult the intelligence of every viewer that you have you know look if i'm tuning in to see curling on the nbc live stream i'm obviously already kind of a hardcore fan right i'm not just stumbling into this um, i'm seeking this out I'm, I'm watching canada play switzerland because i know this is an important game so treat me as if i've watched this before so that's my rant about the Olympics, which uh, otherwise I enjoyed. I love the Olympics, and the reason I called in the Loot Show uh, yesterday was to argue that the Winter Olympics are better than the Summer Olympics, and I stand by that. He, he says I'm insane, and, and this time, Loot's wrong, and I'm right. Let that have Luke as a guest on at some point. He's not a soccer dad. He is a soccer fan. He's a fan of Real Madrid, so another case where he's wrong. Um, I'd say that, of course, being someone who is has a general affinity to Barcelona. I can't call myself a supporter, but if you give me a choice between Real Madrid and Barcelona, I'm obviously going to choose Barcelona every time. So that's the quick update on what's been going on in my world, including the Patreon page, which again, if you check out RantingSoccerDad.com, uh, you will get some more information on that. You can also go to Patreon.com slash RantingSoccerDad if you want to cut out the middleman and go straight to the site, see what I'm doing, and chip in a dollar, or two, or three. I haven't come up with a good $3 reward yet, um, but I will. Maybe I'll make a t-shirt. So, my guest today, you should know who she is. In fact, it breaks my heart sometimes when I ask people on my youth soccer teams, I say, do you know who uh, Landon Donovan is? Do you know who... Mia Hamm is. So they'll usually know Mia. Um, and I've asked them, do you know who Julie Foudy is? And they don't know. And that, that I find that a little heartbreaking. So I'm assuming the people listening to this, I'm assuming most of you are over the age of 12. 
And so you know who Julie Foudy is. You know that she was a captain of the U.S. women's national team through a lot of its greatest successes, Hall of Famer, and now as if just to make me that much more jealous, uh, a better journalist than I am. Uh, work, working for ESPN, not just doing commentary, but also doing actual journalism stories uh, that are really good. Because she's a really sharp person. Um, I've been looking forward to talking with her because we always have good conversations. And because she's someone who has a lot of insight as a former player, as a commentator, as a journalist, and yes, she's a, she's a soccer mom. So, here's today's guest, Julie Foudy. So we're here today with, fresh off the plane, back from South Korea, where she has spent the last Two and a half? Three weeks? How long were you there? Three weeks. 21 days. Not that I'm counting. (laughs) Yeah, USA Today would never spend this that long. I I remember getting there essentially the day before I had to get on a bus to go cover the uh, first soccer game in Beijing and uh, being bewildered about where I was uh, for (laughs) several days. And I never figured out – yeah, I never, I never even figured out the time difference. I would just go in and say, okay, it's Wednesday. You're writing this paper, this thing that really takes place on Thursday for the for the Friday paper, and I'd go, what? That doesn't. Never mind. I'll just go. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, and and you are back now, already gearing up for uh, Sheep Leaves Cup, right? Yeah, Columbus, Ohio, right now, actually home for two days and hit the road again which my kids were very happy about. Yeah, you know, I mentioned in the intro segment that uh, I envied you going to the Olympics just because I love the Olympics so much, but I don't envy you spending two days at home, and I'm sure my and my my wife would not envy your husband in that case either, because uh, <laughs> she certainly likes having me around. Yeah, in fact, exactly. Yeah, in fact, this yeah, in fact, this week I'm flying solo because she's the one who has to travel. So. Ah, oh, look at you. So. See, that's good, Bo good for you that's right you know that it's uh but i got just enough work done during the olympics that i feel okay writing journalist and not house husband on my irs uh form uh <laughs> coming up so the reason i wanted to have you on the show for a while in addition to the fact that um i've known you for oh boy 15 years or so now and we always have great conversations is to help me feel better because you you exude <laughs> positivity and optimism, which I do not, and you have never lost faith in soccer as a wonderful activity uh for all children, you know all and and teenagers, not just those who are really good at it, but everybody mm-hmm. and you know as I've gone through youth soccer. Uh, it seems to me that the people who are winning all the time certainly enjoy it. I'm not mm-hmm. so sure about everyone else, and <laughs> I'm not so sure about the people who run it. And so I know that you do a lot of programs that um, 
that accentuate the positive in the words of the the old jazz standard. So help me see that. What what are you seeing in your <laughs> programs? What sort of difference do you see in kids when they come into one of your programs and, and when they leave? What, what what changes in them? Well, I mean, what we do with our leadership academies, um, which I wish I could do year-round, but obviously I can't, um, but we do them in the summer, and we do week-long sessions, residential sessions. But one of the things I've always gravitated to with sports and which makes me feel positive about them, even when there's a lot of negativity sometimes surrounding them, is that um, if you take away uh, the outcome-related emphasis and focus instead on all these wonderful gifts that sports give you, uh, and in fact not just focus on them but highlight them and make it a part of your curriculum and your training, which I wish clubs did more of, um, then what you find is sports are actually this wonderful gift that teaches all these things that we'll need in life that become a foundation for who you are. And so, and you know, and I think the misconception is, oh, we have to be successful to learn those those lessons or you have to be on a travel team or ODP team or development academy team, which is all bull. No, you could play on your local correct team uh, that loses every single game and if you're focusing on the right things and growth rather than results, then um, you can turn it into, I think, one of the great lessons in life that could serve you well. I mean, there's not a day that goes by, I often say, that I'm not calling on something I learned by playing sports. And I'm not talking, you know, how to bend a ball or how to kick a ball or something technical. I'm talking, you know, when something in life is thrown at me and, uh, and I'm not sure how to handle it or I don't think I can handle it, changing, being able to change that mindset and saying, no, I'm actually fine. I can get through this and this is a good challenge and, you know, and it's okay if I fail and all these wonderful things you learn by playing. So that's what we do with the leadership academies. Um, and that's what I, I, you know, it breaks my heart that we don't do more of that. And you obviously have coaches out there that, you know, get it and do it, and um, and people and parents love them for that. But in this very results-oriented world of youth soccer, <laughs> it's harder to, to make the case that, hey, kids, we're going to work on leadership development today <laughs> because parents are like, how does that mean that kid's getting to college? But, in fact, <laughs> if you actually explain to them, it will help them get to college uh, and help them be a better human being, most importantly. I think then you can actually do a lot of this, and we should be doing a lot of this. So perhaps my kids then, when they're writing their college essays in a couple of years, uh, can write about what they learned losing every soccer game that they played. <laughs> yes, if okay. framed appropriately. I mean, I, I once was on a volleyball team in high school. We lost every single game for like three years. And I remember thinking, oh, my God. But when we framed it the right way, right, and and you took the focus off the loss, but in terms of, you know, small growth in different games or, you know, this game we were able to do this and we hadn't been able to do that before, um, then you start to see the little 
you start to see little progress, the, the progress that's happening, and you have these small victories that maybe don't happen on the scoreboard, but they happen personally. But it's not easy, I know. Losing is no fun. Well, now, soccer and teen sports, uh, and and also some of the more traditional individual sports like, uh, I suppose, tennis, are are facing challenges now because there are so many other activities. Uh, some of them are sports. Some of them are not sports. And uh, one example that springs to mind is sort of the extreme sports, the X Games, which are now in the Olympics as well, where this is – it's a mutually supportive thing. I mean, if if someone lays down a half-pipe run that's really, really good and gets a 92 – and then the next person comes down and does something that's really spectacular and gets a 95, the person who got the 92 actually seems happy for that person. Yeah. And in, in soccer, that's more difficult. You never, you, you rarely have a situation where, where, you know, I might get, you know, nutmegged and then uh, someone, you know, you know, has a back heel pass and sets someone else to score. You know, I rarely go, wow, that was really cool, man. You know, yeah. it's usually a different sort of situation. So how does soccer then keep competing with other sports when it, it, it is, in a sense, by its very nature, it's zero sum? There's a, there's a winner and a loser or, or a tie. Um, but well, that's, well there's, there's a winner and a loser in snowboarding or in X Games. But I, I actually, it's interesting you bring that up because having spent a lot of time with these guys and, and gals of – in winter sports and interviewing them before the Olympics, I'm always fascinated by um, how that world is able to um, separate. I don't know what the right word is, but they separate in terms of results, like I was just discussing. Like they're really good at, and I often try and call them on it. They'll say, like, for example, Red Gerard, right, who won the Olympic gold medal, 17-year-old. And he'll say, um, I say, Red, uh, uh, hey, are you, uh, are you excited that this is, you know, your first Olympics and you've never been to an Olympics before and are you nervous about it? Is that extra pressure or how does that affect you? And he literally was like, nah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, it's not, Olympics aren't a big deal to our, to our world. And I said, really? They're not. And he's like, not really. I mean, we're in it for just the joy. Like, I just want to be out in the powder. I want to be out in the snow. <laughs> and you hear that all the time. Like, the love of the mountains and fresh air and being out there. And there's a real sense of community. And um, it's frowned upon to be cutthroat and competitive. And it's not in the spirit of what they do. And that's that's their community. Like, this is you know, how we roll. So there really is, and I do think it's, obviously there's, there's, um, when they lose or they don't win a gold, they're upset and they get competitive, but there really is a sense of, hey, I just got beat on this day and that's okay. Um, which is a mindset, right? Which is a mindset that, you know, we foster in youth soccer as win at all costs and results matter. And, results matter only because our clubs are set up as a pay-to-play structure. And when you have that, the director of a club is 
keeping his or her job because mostly his, there's not a lot of women running clubs, sadly, um, mm-hmm. because they have to, they have to get results. And so that then filters down to every other co- coach, you need to get results in the club. Um, and so the structure doesn't allow for us to be more philosophical about the beauty of competition and competing. We don't have that community because we're in a, I, you have to win so I can keep my job and make my six figures um, type of environment. So, of course, it's going to be like that in soccer until we change that model. Um, because it doesn't, you know, you rarely, how often do you see a club that says, and they say it, right? Like, oh, we want to play. We're not going to be results oriented. We want to learn. We want to make mistakes. But really, do they actually feel that way? Because at the end of the day, if the teams aren't producing results, then that club isn't getting the best players and that club isn't then keeping its, its uh, director of the club and, you know, it just unravels. So I don't like the model. I don't think it fits in terms of building strong adults that understand that results aren't the only thing that matter in life. It, it is funny how every club says exactly the same thing. Does It says, yeah. oh, we believe in, you know, teaching kids to play the right way and, you know, possession and so forth. I'd love to see a club that says we are going to play direct route one soccer and get results and win. You know, I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, you no, know all that BS we threw out at the beginning? Forget that. We're not saying it because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. going to play to win. <laughs> no, I, I know. I, I often say, like, if there was a club and you just were super transparent about the fact that, yeah, and if that and if results matter to you, then leave. Um, then you'd get rid of all the riffraff that really cares about that stuff that are a pain to deal with anyways, and you could build actually a club that has some – like-minded thinkers but no i'm not starting a club i said this to my husband he's like you sound like you want to start a club i was like i do not want to start a club i'm not starting a club oh that that brings us to something that you already mentioned which is there there aren't that many women in coaching and there aren't that many women well there also weren't that many women in hey i just went to the u.s soccer annual general meeting um which you didn't get to go to because you were in South Korea while I was walking around in shorts in Orlando. And, yeah, not a lot of women there. Uh, yeah. Not a lot of women in state associations, not a lot of women in coaching. And, you know, you talked about it in terms of the presidential race where you, you didn't – you said that as long as it was structured the way it was, where it was an unpaid job that would, you know, take you away from from – everything else that you're doing, you couldn't do it. I've also talked with other people. I One of my first podcast guests was Yael Averbush, who is changing the way we think about how we train young players. And she has an app and all sorts of other activities and so forth. And I asked her about going to coaching, and she it seems like that's not what she's going to do. So hmm. what do we do? I'm, I'm kind of at a loss here. I mean, the, the, the counter example I always think of is one of your former teammates, Shannon McMillan, who uh, runs a youth club, comes in and does sessions at the organization formerly known as NSCAA, and was also featured in the old, in the uh, F license videos as a great example of how to learn to coach. So how do we how do we get more people to follow the Shannon McMillan path? 
Well, one, you encourage them to do that. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, while I was playing, for example, not one person in my life said, hey, you should think about coaching or you should think about staying in the game or um, you should consider taking a coaching course. Um, and we're going to offer coaching courses for the national team. I mean, now they do that, but they never did it when we were playing. Right. And so one is creating that pipeline and encouraging young women to go down that pipe to face their shoes um, and just making it, them aware it's available. And the second one is is lowering the barriers to entry. It's so hard for a young woman, one, to afford to actually go and get their coaching license, which is required mm-hmm. um, by U.S. soccer. And mind you, this is all stuff I've told U.S. soccer. It's ridiculous how hard it is to get. The second one is, is you're going with um, my friend Samantha Snow, who's a, a fantastic A-licensed coach. She said every license she got, she was the only woman. She stayed in a totally separate dorm, and it was, you know, 100 guys. Um and she was courageous enough to fight through that and do it all, but there's there's n- there's no community of women out there where they say, hey, let's go to them and say, let's do something for you so we can. And it's you know it's a lot of time away. If you have kids, you know they're asking you to go for these long sessions where you're having a job or you have kids and you can't get away for that long. So. They need to change the system, in my opinion, to make it more affordable, uh, more appealing for women, and simply more doable, and they're not. And so, and it's super low-hanging fruit, that like things they could change. Um, and so you find a lot of women are dissuaded uh, from doing it because, you know, they just can't get their license or they think it's going to be too much time on the road or for whatever reason. So it makes me sad because I don't think we are – building a culture where we say to women, you know, hey, this is really a, a really cool opportunity for you to, you know, continue to stay in the game even when you're done playing. Um, and I right. don't think we do a good job of that at all levels. I mean, from the coaching side to the uh, administrative side to getting in, you know, as a general manager or marketing or whatever it is. So, and so, as a result, you see a lot of white men that run soccer in this country, and we wonder why <laughs> there continues to be more just white men running soccer in this country. Well, guess what? You fish from the same pond, right? So, you know, I, I, I once said to Jay Berhalter and Dan Flynn, if you tell me one more time that there's no more women, right, and that you can't find them, I, I'm going to go crazy. You're fishing from the same pond. That's the problem, which is why you need a diverse board, which is why you need – senior level administrators who are women. It's why you, you know, you need diversity in any organization. Every company knows this in terms of just you're more successful when you have diversity of thought and not just women, diversity in general. Okay. Well, let's shift then to you, you are like me and like most people our age. Well, well, you're, you're younger than I am, um, but those of us who have kids, start seeing youth soccer through a different perspective, which is we see our own kids going through it. Uh, what would you say in a general sense are the, the positives and negatives that you've seen as your kids have uh, have been playing? Um, I think, I mean, I love to see that they just love to be a part of a team 
you know, I think that's the thing I, I remember the most. It's not, you know, oh, we won this or we did this. It was, um, you know, I could name every single soccer ad I played with on my mighty green machine team. So, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, to see them, you know, just want to hang out after tournament games and eat together and spend time together and uh, on the road at tournaments together. I mean, I just, those are the moments that I cherish and loved. And, um, and so I love that side of it. I love the camaraderie of a team sport. Um, the side of it that I don't love is, you know, that they play year round. They want them to play year round. And I constantly push back on that. I actually, um, don't have them train in the summer, even though the club trains. I, I, you know, we, we've really limited time in the winter even because they're doing other sports. And so I mean, right now my, my little guy is playing, you know, flag football and basketball and soccer at the same time. It's just too much. So we end up saying no for soccer in the winter and, you know, and, and really trying to, um, make sure that there's a diversity of sport. I'm, I'm so against, you know, specializing at an early age for, that's a whole other hour conversation, but, and I know if people <laughs> say, oh yeah, well, once they get to the age of like middle school, when you really get that pressure, you know, let me know how it is. But I always say to the kids, like, we're going to play as many sports as we can for as long as we can. Um, because I just think it's a healthier outlook too. You don't get burnt out. You don't get injured. Uh, you're fresher. So, but it's amazing, you know, that again, this model of, um, because we're charging so much money, we feel like, I feel like you just want to put sessions out there because they have to, because they're charging all this money, but there's no real goal in mind for this winter kind of summer session. And there's no, uh, tournaments or anything. It's just, you know, we're going to train a few times a week and I don't know. I just, it just bugs me. So we, we push back on that, but, um, but, I, I mean, we found a club that we like in our little San Clemente area that um, we think is, you know, and I think that's always the challenge for parents is how do you know what you're getting into? We find, like, the parents aren't intense. It's, you know, it's it's competitive, but it's practical. It's not a bunch of crazy parents screaming on the sidelines or coaches screaming on the sidelines. So, um and, that, and that's obviously hugely important to me. It's just the atmosphere you're you're putting your kid into, and and even to the point of like our our little guy, they wanted to put him to the top tier team, and he I said, what do you want to do? And he said, uh, I really like my team, mom. I said, good, stay with your team. So we <laughs> we didn't put him at the top <laughs> tier. We're like, good, if you like your team, we like the parents. Let's just stay here. You're fine. So I think that's huge. That's not what I often tell parents. It's like, you know, when you find a group of people you like and players that your daughter or son likes, that's huge. Stay with that, right? Because that's all about the experience, and that's the most important thing in my in my mind. The camaraderie thing is is interesting, and I've heard you. I mean, you and I have talked about it before, but I think it really, in the context we're talking about here. I do feel like it's something that U.S. soccer is forgetting. I mean, when U.S. soccer came out with the birth year mandates, which split up teams, mm-hmm. they, they were just overlooking how important the concept of a team was. And also, I feel like um, as I look at what my kids get, and they both, you know, they both play soccer, but they have other activities. Um, they have theater. 
and School of Rock. And I look at what those activities do. And, you know, those theater and School of Rock, you can face some adversity there, too. Um, some of the things that you do are a challenge, learning a new part, uh, acting or playing it. Uh, can be mm-hmm. a challenge, and sometimes sometimes you'll get turned down for things. You, compet- you know, you'll have auditions, and they're competitive, and you right. might not make it. But what they're getting from those experiences are, first of all, a, a diverse age range, where you know I have my, you know, my son when he was ten was up playing shows with kids who were eighteen, and. Right. It was a wonderful experience where like, the older kids were bringing along the younger kids. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are some soccer clubs that do that. I mean, there's a club that I'm I, that I know well that sort of has that atmosphere, but they really just don't have a lot of interaction between the older kids and the younger. And mm-hmm. there's also that camaraderie is sort of lost. I, I feel like a lot of soccer parents that I talk with are always talking about they're always looking at the rest of the team as competitors. You know, say, well, you know, they they may bring in a couple more players this year so they can, you know, they're they're trying to get these people to come over from this club to to really make a push into Division One or to go play EDP or ECNL or something like that. And uh, so it it feels like. You know, the experience I have in, tra- in travel soccer, at least, is that to some extent every kid's out for himself or every family right. is out for itself. Uh, right. So do you see that as well? Or do you, uh, it sounds like your club is a little more rational than that, but do you see that? <laughs> well, I, I see that when, I mean, we don't do it as much at our club, but I see it in other clubs when, um, this whole guest player idea too, right? Which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I play with pretty much a very similar core of players for 10 years on my Mission Viejo Soccerettes club team. And, you know, and there's still many of them, some, my best friends still. And, um, and we were, you know, we would, the fringes would change a little bit, but like the core 15 players were pretty much the same. 12 players and um and it's amazing because now when you go to a tournament you know you can have guest players come in and out so they'll bring better players you know that guests play in and i i get it right again it's a results issue but then the whole idea of team chemistry and camaraderie and now you know here's a kid maybe who's gone to every single practice and this guest player who's never practiced with the team once gets to play, you know, 95% of the game. And the other kid who's been to every single practice, who everyone loves, gets, you know, 10 minutes on the field. So, and I don't like that. I don't, I mean, you're sending a message that hard work and persistence and uh, loyalty doesn't matter to this club and to this team. And so the whole guest player thing drives me nuts. Because, again, it's for one point only. It's results. But we have this incredible opportunity to teach our kids that if you're going to dive in and you're going to commit and you're going to work hard, then that will pay off somehow. Right? And it doesn't mean maybe you're going to get an entire game, but I'm not going to put you in for five silly minutes just because I have to um, because this guest player came the whole time. So it's things like that that clubs embrace. And I go, ah, 
you know, what are you teaching a kid? You're teaching them that, you know, that hard work really doesn't matter to what you do. So I don't like that. So we have a lot of things to fix. And, <laughs> and, and some of these can honestly be done at a club-by-club level. I mean, and some some clubs do a better job than others at this, surely. Uh, and some regions may do a better job than others. And that's one of the things I'm hoping to find as I keep working on my blog and my podcast and my guide. Um, but at the macro level, it's U.S. soccer, which just had its big election. And a big part of that election was the Athletes Council. And we'll, we'll toss aside the, the Twitter fringe conspiracy people, you know, the ones who – are now trying to uh, retrofit their conspiracy theory because initially uh, the athletes were all going to vote for Kathy Carter because of Casey Wasserman, and now they're trying to figure out um, how to retrofit that theory to fit the fact that the Athletes' Council voted for Carlos Cordero, um, <laughs> which, which is amusing. <laughs> right. So it, it, it's funny to see that because mm-hmm. you rarely get to see the fringe elements get their comeuppance like that. But – there is all there. There was also uh, palpable in Orlando and um, in the conversations I had with people who were not on the Twitter fringe, a concern that people were going. Well, wait a minute. Why is the athletes' council so intent on voting as a block? And what are they discussing? You know, mm-hmm. were, there were long discussions. The, the other councils in Orlando met for an hour, an hour and a half. They took care of various little business and then uh, broke and went back to the hotel bar. Um, <laughs> the Athletes Council met for six or seven hours just on that one day, and I know that there was certainly a lot of conversation before that. Um, so why those block and what were the issues? And you and I have been talking about all these great youth soccer issues are those things that are coming up when you get Kate Markgraf and Nick Pereira and Chris Sarens and Carl Spokenegra all sitting in one room? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know why it took so long. I was in South Korea, so I wasn't talking with them because it was the middle <laughs> of my night when they were doing all this. Um, uh, I just know it did take long. When I'd say, how are things going? You know, I'd get a text back when I wake up the next day saying, we're still in meetings. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Um so, I, I mean, why they vote as a block, it, they always have um, the athlete council. You know, my understanding of it, I've never sat on the athlete council. My understanding of it is because they think it shows uh, unity, um, that they also realize that if they vote as a block, then they have a much bigger say in the outcome of the election, of course. So, um, but I know the big initial principle is that they feel like it sends it that they're one voice uh, and that has always been important to them historically um it, it does around, but then the optics are kind of bad on that because then people wonder well what are you demanding then for a vote what, what are you demanding for what what does the athletes council want you know to the voting a block but to what end well but it doesn't necessarily mean they're demanding something. They're basically saying that we hold a lot more power if we vote as a block. So I, I actually, mm-hmm. I actually have said to them in the past, like, you know, 
you, you don't have to, of course, vote as a block, but then you may not get a candidate in there that you want, right? And you may have to settle because then your vote is divided, which is fine, right? If you're, you know, set, dead set against someone and I don't want to go with, you know, say they were dead set against Kathy, which a few were, um, or against Carlos, which a few were, or against whoever. So that's fine, but then you may get someone in there that you don't want. Right. And understand that um, you may be sacrificing your strength for um, for someone else actually getting the job. And so I, I don't know what was debated in the end, but I think what they came to is even if they couldn't get if a, if a person couldn't get their first selection. Right. Uh, could they convince everyone to get on the same page for the second selection or the third selection? which meant that the fourth, fifth, and sixth person that they didn't want wouldn't get it. And so, and I and I don't know how that played out at all. And I haven't actually asked since I've been home from Korea, like, how it went down. Um, but I, I do know that they were conscious of wanting to come together as a unifying voice rather than being super fragmented. Okay. And I, and. Of course, the argument that's often made for the athletes' council is is that look, the the athletes have experienced soccer on all levels. They they were youth players, and because it's limited to people who were on national teams, people who were in international competition in the last ten years, then you're real, you're talking about people whose youth soccer experience was. A couple of decades ago, but not you know a couple of generations ago, right? And they and they played professionally, and a lot of them play uh, adult amateur now. So mm-hmm. they really have seen all the different aspects of things. I I guess the frustration, um, as I was speaking with you know Carlos Bocanegra and other people uh, afterwards, was that I, I was trying to get a sense of what they really talked about beyond just. Um, this is who we felt was the most experienced person. Now, you could say that, look, they, they simply took their deliberative duties more seriously than anybody else. And the fact that uh, the name Carlos Cordero came out of seven hours of meetings just just that day as, and, and tons of meetings on the phone before that uh, speaks volumes to uh, Cordero's qualifications. I guess it'd be nice if they could open up about what they were talking about and what it, what they see for youth soccer. Um, especially, you know, there's there's a bridge to be built now because there are a lot of people who wanted change of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of people. One thing I keep reminding a lot of people because you know the conversation in the media was so different, not just on Twitter and social media, but the conversation in the media itself was so different than it was in Orlando, I think it's perfectly rational for some people to look at Cordero as a change candidate. I mean, he's, yeah, he's vice president, but he's only been vice president for two years. Mm-hmm. And and his platform looked pretty similar to a lot of the other change candidates. But I guess the the question is now, can the athletes, you know, take an active role in – in taking a lot of the points that were raised by an Eric Winalda or by a Cal Martino uh, or a Cal Jury or a Solo or a Gans or a Winograd and, and 
put them forward and, and try to make sure that they keep talking about it. They do have three yeah. seats on the board. Yeah. Do you get a sense that they have the capacity to do that at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great point because I think one of the things that this crisis, if that's what you call it, in terms of the men not qualifying for the World Cup, what it caused is uh, in any crisis you have to sit there and reevaluate and reassess and think, okay, what happened uh, and what's going on? And I, and I always have contended that's probably the silver lining of all of this is that you have – uh, a lot of people, myself included, that had to take a deeper dive into things than we ever have of, you know, how was our structure and how was our governance and um, what's the succession plan for a Dan Flynn and for Sunil and why did um, Sunil, for all of the things he's been able to build, why did he have his hand in so many pots as a volunteer president? Um, and so that when, and the danger of that, of course, is when you're in a volunteer position, and you're so intimately engaged with so many things. If what happened happened as it did, then it's a house of cards. You have a lot of holes that you then have to fill because that president is in way too many things um, mm-hmm. as a volunteer position uh, that's elected. So, I mean, I think you had a lot of athletes who sat on that council and players in general who were former council members. You know, Cindy Parlow was actively engaged. Um, mm-hmm. Who I saw her in Orlando uh, with her yeah, with he, her little baby. Yeah, who did a ton of work and dove into the issues and talked to the candidates and as we all did. And so I think you're you're right. It's like how do you um, and you had a lot. You know, you had a diversity of ideas coming in from people who haven't been on the inside. Uh, and you, you know, my my impression of Carlos is he's very um, willing to listen to those diversity of opinions, and which I think people like, that he agrees that there are things that need to change. He agrees that, you know, it shouldn't be a non-soccer guy like him making decisions on, you know, the way we're going to run our curriculum going forward for youth, the way we're going to hire coaches, the way we're going to ha- hire a technical director, which were all things that Sunil took an upper hand in. So um, I am hopeful that he continues to keep all those good people engaged because I think, you know, talking to the Gans and the Winograds and, um, you know, and Kyle and all those guys extensively, they have a lot of really good ideas about, you know, how to change the game. And there's so many layers of the game. No one understands all the different layers. But when you bring in the different people from the different layers and you start to say, oh, you know, maybe U.S. soccer and the, the old structure didn't quite understand what was going on at that level. Um, because they're at 30,000 feet, but we can do a better job of understanding at that level. So, but, you know, what's clear is you need a unifying, uh, you need a unifying person because there's a lot of anger and division, um, that needs to be cleaned up. And I think that's the first thing Carlos is going to try and tackle because that in the World Cup bid is, is, is just, um, it's, it's there's a division that's sad because I think there's a lot of good that should be happening. Okay, so you actually have managed to make me feel better. We have a soccer president now who's going to listen so. and a change agenda that's not going away. So, <laughs> so that's good. So really quickly before I let you go, um, 
Seabullies Cup is coming up. You'll be involved with covering that. Um, what should we be looking for? Um, well, last year, the U.S. team finished in the last at <laughs> the Seabullies Cup. So hopefully <laughs> you're looking at the U.S. team finishing in a higher position. Uh, last year, though, you might recall, was when Jill Ellis was tinkering with a three-back and uh, she was playing like a 3-5-2 and they lost to France 3-0 and they lost to England 1-0. And so uh, it's very clear that she's not uh, playing in a three-back this year uh, and that she's using a more solidified lineup. So uh, it'll be a great test for them. You got, you got, you know, four of the top six teams in the world. And so especially with qualifiers in the fall, this will be the big test for the U.S. to see you know, how much how much progress they've made in the last year when they, you know, last the first half of 2017 was a tough first half for the United States. And, and then they turned it around the second half. So they're going to want to keep that momentum going forward, of course. You still have a ton of injuries, though. Rose Lavelle is still out. Tobin Heath is still out. Becky Sauerburn's out with a, a you know, a, a foot stress reaction. Uh, Sammy mm-hmm. Mewis is still out with a knee. And there's just been some lingering injuries that trouble me a little bit. But when you're playing as much as they play, it's to be expected, I guess. But it's just like, you know, Rose Lavelle's been out over six months now with his hammy. So, and that's a player I think that would be a great player for him. So I think they're going to have to get that sorted for sure is why are these injuries lingering so long. Right. And the thing on the positive side, and, of course, it's funny, we just – bemoaned it a little bit on on a youth soccer team, but there there really is competition for places here. And, of course, some of that is the lead. Some of it is, I think, changes in the CBA where you don't have – where you have a little bit more roster flexibility, we think. Uh, we haven't seen the actual CBA, but that's what um, people who have seen it have, have said. And so – it seems like in in this case, a lot of people are still having a fairly healthy competition for places on this team. Yeah, it's you know it's an embarrassment of riches, is what I say. It's a good problem to have when you know you look at your bench and you've got Crystal Dunn and Press and Carly Lloyd and um, I mean you go you go down that bench and go, gosh, those are all you know players that could be starting for many other national teams and. Um, you know, Morgan Bryan and they're not and they're not getting that much time. So um yeah, I think, you know, you got a lot of young players that are stepping up. Mallory Pugh is nineteen still. Uh Lindsay Horan is young. Rose Lavelle, as we said before, is young. So uh Andy Sullivan is back in the mix, just graduated from Stanford. Karina Davidson mm-hmm. is a young Stanford stud who's gonna start at center back tonight. Um again in her second cap. So uh, and, a, and a ton of upside with that player. So I think that's a, a great sign, is you need some young technical players coming through for sure. But uh, it's going to get interesting as, you know, everyone gets back healthy as we have to cut that roster down. But a good problem to have for sure. Yeah, but that sounds like too many Stanford people and not enough Duke people. I mean, how are you going to compete with, uh, you know, Canada's got Rebecca Quinn back there. How are you going to keep up with that? So. <laughs> I liked her. Right. She's a good player. Your she is a good, good player. I've talked with a, you know, it's probably true for Stanford too, but I've I've done it. I've talked on this podcast with uh, Gwendolyn Ottsenham, and 
I've talked a few times with Rebecca Smith, who captained New Zealand and now works at FIFA. Um, so it's probably true of Stanford women's soccer players too, but I'll say this, Duke women's soccer players run the world. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably a better place because of it. So you, you yet another positive that, note. So. <laughs> we are so, on the national team. You can run the world. That's right. So we yet another it. positive note to, to end on. Uh, you know, there really are good people who come through this. Uh, and I really appreciate it. It's so good to talk, talk with you again. And um, anything you want to plug before we go? Anything I want to plug? Oh, buy my yeah. book. I'm an author. Choose to matter. There you go. There's my plug. Great for young All women, right. young adults, not just women, but both. It's all about finding the joy in what you do, having more confidence. We could use that. We all could use that, right? right? I, uh, I don't know. Some some of the athletes I see in in my town have a little bit too much confidence, but that's that's a, that's for another <laughs> that's for another time. In in general, yes. And and I would say, as someone who bought your book electronically, uh, buy it in print because you do some neat formatting that I think works better in print. So yeah, yeah, yeah very interactive. Yeah, and so. Um, so do buy Julie's book in in print. You know, hey, dead trees are making a comeback. So, Julie, thanks very much, and uh, right, look Bob. forward to seeing you on the broadcast this weekend. Okay, thanks, buddy. Well, very happy to be back in the podcasting game. That was a great discussion. Thank you so much, Julie Fowdy, for joining me here. Check out RantingSoccerDad.com. Check us out on Patreon. Let's get this guide up and running. Let's make things positive. Let's do it. Thank you. Yeah.